Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Early voting underway here in Iowa two weeks before Election Day. Well, those of you who've already voted know that. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about the measure that is on the back of the Iowa voting ballot. When you turn it over, that very last option you will see or have seen is a public measure on strengthening gun rights in the state of Iowa. Much of uh, the first part of today's program, we want to devote to understanding this measure, uh, hearing also voices both for and against it. Let's start off the hour by getting the basics from IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek. Hi, Katerina. Katerina, are you there? Hi, Ben. Hi there. Now we're hearing you. So let's. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that uh, during the first half of this program, if you have any questions uh, about uh, this measure, um, you can email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. No phones today, but we do have email, uh, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, so, so I want to read the amendment verbatim, Katerina, and then I'd like you to just to point out what is... Um, most significant about the wording here. The proposed constitutional amendment says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The sovereign state of Iowa affirms and recognizes this right to be a fundamental individual right. Any and all restrictions of this right shall shall be subject to strict scrutiny. End of quote. Uh, Pick that apart for us. Tell us what we should pay attention to most there, Katerina. Right. So we all know that the U.S. Constitution has the Second Amendment that is considered to protect gun rights in the country as a whole to some degree. Um, And then in this amendment, it's not the same as the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The language that would be added to the Iowa Constitution includes, as you said, this line that says, any and all restrictions of this right shall be subject to strict scrutiny. So that's telling courts that when they're looking at gun regulations, that they have to use strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of judicial review, to determine whether gun control laws should be upheld. Um, And so essentially, this would make it very hard for gun control laws to survive court challenges. Okay, so voters looking at the back of that ballot, that measure, uh, have the option of voting yes to add this language to the Iowa Constitution, which is a yes vote is strengthening gun rights, or they can vote no to reject it, correct? Correct. Okay. So so, so give us a little bit of uh, a sense of how we got here, a little context. Right. So this is something that's been um, pushed for several years in Iowa and in, and in some other states. Um, several years ago, the National Rifle Association started pushing this states to add this to their constitutions because they were concerned that Courts across the country were um, allowing, in their view, too many gun control laws to stand. Um, And so this was a way that the NRA saw as um, strengthening gun rights within the state so that would essentially force courts, in some cases, to strike down gun control laws that the NRA didn't agree with. Um, And in Iowa, we have the Iowa Firearms Coalition and the lobbyist um, for them, Richard Rogers, who's someone I've talked to about this amendment. You know, he said that um, this at this point, though, um, 
well, at the time that they were proposing this amendment several years ago, strict scrutiny was the gold standard in terms of what they thought was the highest protection for gun rights that they could get. Um, But this summer, there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision that kind of changed things because it gave such a high, it, it basically interpreted the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution as having really, really strong gun rights protections. So now, um, instead of this Iowa amendment being kind of the only thing they would see as protecting gun rights in Iowa, you now have um, kind of two different levels of protection hmm. with if this amendment were to pass. Okay, thank you for giving us the basics on this, uh, Katarina. We'll have you back in the program, um, and uh, we'll talk about some other things on the ballot, some other statewide races. But for now, IPR's uh, Katarina Sestarek, thank you. Thanks, Ben. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, now that Katarina has given us the basics on the gun rights amendment on our voting ballots this year, let's hear some voices for and against. Uh, Let's talk to an Iowa legislator first who is in favor of a yes on this measure. He's been on our program before. State Representative Stephen Holt is a Republican from Denison. Welcome back to our program, Representative Holt. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. In June of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision that strengthened protections for gun rights, which means a lot of laws restricting guns in public uh, will likely be struck down based on that. And since federal law supersedes state law in this matter, why is this state amendment with the strict scrutiny standard needed? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, the idea of incorporating... uh these rights against the states uh, only happened uh, in 2010 through the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So there are those that make the argument uh, continuing to this day that those amendments don't apply to the states, that they only apply to the federal government. And so that is a reason. You know, the Supreme Court made that great ruling. I think it was a great ruling. But but we also know, frankly, that those who are opposed to gun rights have been talking about stacking that Supreme Court. And so those decisions could change. And so when you look at the fact that there are those who argue that those federal amendments don't apply to states, but, you know, uh, there's that reason. And uh, also on the state level, there have been numerous attempts since I've been chair of judiciary uh, by those who don't believe that this fundamental right to keep and bear arms should apply to individual citizens. They've advanced numerous pieces of legislation uh, to assault gun rights. House File 65, as an example, would have returned us to May issue, would have gotten rid of constitutional carry, shall issue, and returned us to May issue. Uh, that was sponsored by Representative Bruce Hunter, uh, meaning that sheriffs could have simply refused to to grant uh, permits. Uh, there was another one, House File 129, that was a large, what they called a large capacity magazine round, uh, ban, which was anything over 10 rounds of ammunition. So There are numerous reasons uh, why we need uh, this amendment. Uh, I would remind your listeners we're one of only six states that does not have some type of protection for the right to keep and bear arms in our state constitution. So when you look at all of that, uh, again, particularly, I think, um, in the uh, several Supreme Court decisions in which those who were opposed uh, believe that that word militia doesn't uh, shouldn't apply to individual citizens because they're looking at how that word is used today as opposed to how uh, it was used back in the day. Uh, when you look at that, along with the argument that uh, those uh, those uh, rights uh, found in the Bill of Rights only apply to the federal government, should not be applied to the states. When you look at all of those arguments, I think it is very compelling and very clear that we need constitutional protections in our state constitution for this fundamental individual right. 
Mm-hmm. L- let me let me ask you a, a few other questions about what, what some of the things you just mentioned. Um, to be clear, this amendment is not just about enshrining the Second Amendment right to bear arms in the Iowa Constitution. It, it goes beyond that. If it was just the, the the right to bear arms, as in the U.S. Constitution, it would be an amendment that reads exactly the same as the Second Amendment, and it doesn't. It goes beyond with these words, these legal words, strict scrutiny. So why does Iowa need a tougher standard to protect gun rights than the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? Well, and I would respectfully disagree with your interpretation. We're simply using modern-day language. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are those who argue that uh, that, that term militia means that it, it shouldn't apply to individuals uh, in our country. And, of course, Justice Scalia and the Heller decision disagreed with that because he went back and looked at how the language was used at that time. So we have language based upon the reality that in 36 other states – We know that they have constitutional protection for the right to keep and bear arms. But in a number of those states, there are egregious gun control laws. And uh, so that weak language has not held up. So that term strict scrutiny that everybody wants to get upset about uh, is the highest level of judicial review. And it requires the court to determine if the governor government's action is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. And we think that's exactly the kind of judicial standard that should be applied to a fundamental individual right, such as the Second Amendment, or such as the right to keep and bear arms. So as an example, let's, uh, folks are talking about, you know, uh, no, no gun law would be able to stand up to that language. And I've, I've, I disagree with that completely. As an example, we have a prohibition against felons owning firearms that is narrowly tailored to felons. It fits a compelling government interest. We don't want felons to own firearms. So we believe that those type of reasonable Laws are, of course, going to be upheld. But if uh, those who don't like gun rights want to start trying to ban magazines and return us to May issue or ban weapons just based upon how they look, which is what uh, those uh, who don't like gun rights have been doing or trying to do over the last few years, those things are not going to stand up. So we, we think this is nothing more than modern language recognizing this fundamental individual right and applying the appropriate judicial standard to such a fundamental right. Let, let, Representative Holt, let me list, since you, you've already listed some of the regulations uh, that you say could be enacted, even if this were adopted into our state constitution, let me list some of the other existing regulations that, according to legal experts, would likely be struck down under this strict scrutiny standard if this amendment passes. Prohibitions on on the possession of firearms as a felon, a domestic abuse offender, carrying firearms on school grounds, prohibitions against carrying firearms as an intoxicated person, laws allowing for the creation of weapons-free zones, laws that make individual uh, individuals ineligible to carry firearms if addicted to alcohol or using drug or if they have a prior assault on conviction. So there's a long list of those, and, and also allowing businesses to limit guns on their property, Uh, private property owners, private businesses. Uh, You you disagree with all those uh, as, as, as this is would you disagree that it would prevent all of those? Well, you, you, you named off quite a few things there. So let, let me first of all say again, go back to what strict scrutiny standard means narrowly tailored to fit a compelling government interest. And I think a number of the things that you just mentioned, are narrowly tailored and fit a compelling government interest. And so 
I don't know who the legal scholars are that you're talking about, but I've also spoken to legal scholars. And, and uh, other than the gun-free zone, because I will say, and I'm not talking about schools, because I do think that is a uh, – there's a good argument, obviously, on, in school areas. But in, in terms of gun-free zones in general, anybody that believes a gun-free zone – makes anyone safe, I think is, is living in, in a dream world because, you know, folks that decide they're going to mass murder people, uh, don't care what the law is in the first place, or they wouldn't have done that because it is against the law to murder people. So anybody that believes you put up a sign that says gun free zone makes you safer, I think is, is really ridiculous and naive. So other than that one, I think a number of the things that you mentioned there, I, I would not agree. I think uh, in a number of the things you mentioned, they're narrowly tailored and they, they fit a, a compelling government interest. So, again, you're going to have legal opinions on both sides of that. But I, I think, like I said, I think if it's narrowly tailored, fitting a compelling government interest, it will stand up to the strict scrutiny standard. One other point that you mentioned, you said that Iowa is one of very few states that does not have a um, the right to bear arms in its constitution. Wouldn't a better way to put it, because strict scrutiny is really at the heart of it, that uh, this would put Iowa on the same page as only three other states who have that have strict scrutiny in their constitution? Those states, Alabama, Louisiana, and Missouri, and uh, critics mention of, of your position mentioned that those three states are ranked second, fourth, and fifth in the nation in the number of gun deaths per capita. How do you respond to that criticism? Yeah, I think you can you can take statistics and skew them any way that you want to. I, I don't dis- I don't agree with that at all. And again, I applaud those other states because they see that a fundamental individual right should be protected by the highest judicial standard, which is narrowly tailored to fit a compelling government interest. We're talking about a fundamental individual right here to defend ourselves and to keep and bear arms. And so I believe it is the appropriate standard that needs to be applied. And, and I think it's, it's great that three other states have done that. And I will say again, this is modern day language that I believe uh, if, if we, you know, if this, uh, if the Bill of Rights was written today, I believe the second amendment would be written this way, because again, the interpretations on the wording that was used back in the day, because folks today don't want to go back and, and be originalists and look at how the language was actually intended uh, during that time, which is what uh, Scalia pointed out in the uh, Heller decision. I think this is exactly the right language to protect this fundamental individual right to keep and bear arms. And finally, Representative Holt, to zoom out on the bigger discussion here of uh, that, uh, you know, we're all concerned about the rise, the increase in firearm deaths. Uh, firearms now the leading cause of deaths for those uh, 1 to 19 years old from 2019 to 2020. Uh, the firearm homicide rate in the U.S. increased by 34 percent. Firearm suicide rates increased for some populations. So, I mean, with that as the overall shared concern by all of us as Iowans and, and Americans, you fundamentally disagree with a lot on the other side of this amendment about how to reduce those numbers. We have a mental health crisis in this country brought about by a breakdown in our families, a breakdown in our value system. It is not about the gun. It is about the character of the person holding that firearm. Let's be realistic here. We have a mental health crisis in our country because we have a breakdown in the values in our families that create strong children and adults. And if we really want to get to the issue of gun violence, then we need to address the mental health crisis and the 
crisis we have in our value system in our country today. I would also point out to your listeners that the vast majority of folks that have gone in and and, uh, committed horrific gun violence came from uh, fatherless homes. And so, again, if we really want to address gun violence in this country, let's not talk about an inanimate object. Let's talk about the values that are missing that have resulted in where we are today. I grew up in the 1970s, and there were actually high school kids that came to school with a hunting rifle in the back of their pickup because they were going hunting in the afternoon. We didn't have school shootings. Why is that? It's a value problem. It's not a gun problem. State Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison, thank you very much for your view, Representative Holt. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. That conversation with Representative Holt recorded yesterday uh, due to his schedule. He could not join us live today. Live again, though, now on this edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Uh, Ben Kiefer discussing in the first half of the program a public measure on the ballot of Iowa voters um, on strengthening uh, gun rights in the state. We had an email from Eric, one of our listeners, who takes issue with that uh, wording there. He says the gun, the amendment has nothing to do with, quote, strengthening gun rights. It is intended to limit responsible legislation and regulations. Uh, You can join us via email with your question one, uh, river to River at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, uh, let's talk for the remainder of this half hour with Connie Ryan. Uh, Connie co-leads the Iowans for Responsible Gun Laws Coalition, also executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa since 2002. Connie Ryan, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ben. It's good to be with you. I know you want to react to, to what you just heard from Representative Holt. I'm guessing you are. But tell us a little bit about your group and the aims it has regarding this measure first, please. Sure. Interfaith Alliance of Iowa has worked on gun issues. We work on a broad spectrum of issues. Has worked on um, gun issues in particular since Sandy Hook and um, bringing a progressive voice of faith and no faith to that conversation. Iowans for Responsible Gun Laws was created as a coalition to work specifically to defeat what we call the reckless gun amendment and has been working together for just over a year and are working hard as 30 organizations that are part of that, over 30 organizations that are part of that coalition to defeat the gun amendment that's on the ballot Mm -hmm. that voters find. What are your main concerns, the concerns of your group um, about this measure? What it, uh, that the legal terminology we had, strict scrutiny, uh, we have, um, what do you fear would happen should this be adopted? Well, first, I want to say very clearly, and Representative Holt actually made some of our argument for us, that it is not the Second Amendment. If it were the Second Amendment language, then you would not find a coalition working so hard to defeat the amendment. We actually, um, many organizations that lobby at the State House went to Representative Holt and other legislators and asked for the Second Amendment language, and they refused to do so. They rejected the Second Amendment language. It was not good enough um, to be in the Iowa Constitution. And so I want to thank Representative Holt for being honest about that and for um, saying that it is not the Second Amendment, except that the Iowa Firearms Coalition and other organizations are using that argument that it is just the Second Amendment and it's simply not true and is misleading Iowa voters. 
We believe strongly that um, this is a matter of public safety. And so you have to balance. We are not against gun rights. We're not against gun owners. Um, People have the right to own and possess and carry guns. Um, when legally possible in our state. This is about balancing those rights with public safety. It is a public health issue, and we are concerned because the amendment, if it should pass, will put all common-sense gun laws um, on the chopping block should they be challenged in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where Representative Holt, I think, disagrees with you. He says so even with this amendment passing that uh, laws, and he, I named off a whole list of them, which we, we all heard. He said, you know, uh, narrowly ta- tailored laws uh, that meet a compelling government interest uh, would not have a, a problem being put in, in place. Uh, I guess this is the matter of the, uh, you disagree with him on how courts would interpret um, strict scrutiny, that standard. Um, tell us uh, uh, about the, the, the court opinions, the legal scholars you've consulted that lead you in the other direction. Sure. Um, legal scholars that have in Iowa, so Mark Kendi with Drake Law, Todd Pettis with University of Iowa have both said publicly that any common sense gun law, current or future, should a legislature want to pass some kind of laws that would um, be designed to keep the the public safe, um, laws that have to do with guns and public safety, all of those laws would um, potentially be on the chopping block and um, be in danger, which puts Iowans in in further um, danger as well. And I disagree strongly with Representative Holt, with all due respect for his office, but I disagree with him on this notion that he repeated several times to you that it is just about updating and modernizing language. That's simply not true. Strict scrutiny is an actual judicial review level. There are three levels of judicial review that um, court decide, should decide, court should have that decision of deciding what level is most appropriate depending on the language of the law that's being challenged. We don't have strict scrutiny in our state constitution in any other place. And so putting that specific language would not only harm future laws, current and future laws, but it also ties the hands of the courts. It's one um, uh part of government, the legislature, telling the um, the judiciary how they are going to look at laws that are being challenged before them. Okay. Connie, Ryan, we've run out of time. Thank you for making uh, the points you have uh, against the passage of this amendment. Connie Ryan co-leads the Iowans for Responsible Gun Laws Coalition, executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa as well. Always nice to have you on the program. Connie, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. And I would just ask Iowa voters to vote no. Coming up after a short break, another view on the option um, on this gun rights amendment in the, uh, to change it in the Iowa Constitution, which is on the back of the ballot, the proposed amendment. Uh, we'll hear uh, another uh, view in just a moment here on River to River. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines MetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking about some of the things on our ballot um, as we are two weeks away from Election Day. Of course, early voting uh, going on in just a moment. Uh, uh, Katerina Sestarek will join us again to talk about some of the lower profile statewide races you will find on the ballot. But let's finish up our discussion of a public measure on gun rights in the state that you will find on the back of the ballot. And uh, we want understanding this measure is a what we've been up to this uh, first part of the program, hearing voices both for and against it. Again, here here is how it reads on the ballot. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The sovereign state of Iowa affirms and recognizes this right to be a fundamental individual right. And here's the part uh, that is most important, it seems. Any and all restrictions of this right shall be subject to strict scrutiny. And um, it uh, could hinder future attempts to pass gun control laws in the state. Voters have the option to vote yes to add this language to the Iowa Constitution, or they can vote no to reject it. Let's hear one more voice uh, on this um, measure. Nick Maybanks is the Lynn County attorney. Uh, he worked as the Lynn County, a Lynn County prosecutor for over 21 years, uh, appointed to county attorney last January. Uh, Nick Maybanks, uh, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. You've heard a, a number of views uh, prior to this in our last half hour. Um, what is your position here? Uh, ben, I speak from the viewpoint here and the vantage point of the prosecutor uh, in uh, on behalf of law enforcement as well, as to what impact passing this constitutional amendment and enshrining the Constitution will have on our ability to keep people safe. And our viewpoint is that if this measure does pass, that it's going to handcuff law enforcement from enforcing uh, reasonable common sense gun laws uh, in, the, in the streets uh, with the folks they're dealing with. And it's also going to handcuff prosecutors from being able to hold those offenders accountable. And in the end, it's, it's going to endanger public safety. Mm-hmm. Handcuff. So go into that, because uh, Representative Holt would disagree uh, with that. He's uh, saying that uh, the courts uh, would not have a problem with uh, laws that are narrowly tailored to meet uh, compelling government interest. Yeah, when all due respect to Representative Holt, he doesn't see what we see on the front lines uh, in our communities. Um, there was a list of uh, regulations that you uh, set off later, or earlier in the program, Ben, and um, I, I could go back over those again, but there was a few that were left out, too. And what we're talking about here is uh, officers on the streets being able to keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people, people that are ineligible to carry because they're felons, people that are ineligible to carry because they're addicted to alcohol or drugs. They have prior assault convictions. You know, Representative Holt said that um, those laws would survive strict scrutiny. But uh, as Justice Souter said many years ago, there are very few survivors for strict scrutiny. And if you look at the uh, viewpoint of the Iowa Firearms Coalition and their own propaganda for this, they said that this is a near impossible test um, to to pass for gun regulations. Um, We can't control who actually is going to be the individuals that are going to challenge these laws. Uh, Representative Holt has an idealistic viewpoint based on his political positions as to how these laws may survive, but um, we're going to see numerous challenges 
and the courts are going to be bound by that strict scrutiny, and these laws are going to fall. Mm-hmm. You stated that law enforcement is against uh, this measure. Uh, how much of law enforcement? Um, is it is there a spectrum of, of, of opinion there? or, or, or well, fairly? Un- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, there hasn't been a, you know any kind of uh, polling on this or um, a large amount of voices out there. Sheriff Gardner in Lynn County and I have been uh, out here kind of uh, speaking to people about our viewpoint on it. But if you talk to police chiefs, as we have, they're against this too. It's just they can't speak out as uh, freely as some elected officials can on this uh, viewpoint. I mean, it comes down to I have meetings with um, cops about homicide cases, about shootings that take place in Cedar Rapids, and we talk about how um, difficult it is for them now to enforce laws because there's not a permit that's required. There's no educational safety courses that's required in Iowa. Uh, There's no kind of training that's required in Iowa. And we have uh, folks that are carrying around firearms that are dangerous. They have bad intentions. And right now there's uh, very little laws regulating them. In the future, uh, it looks like there's probably not going to be any chance to implement those at this passes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll this week, uh, I'm sure you saw it, found 58% of likely voters plan to vote for the proposed amendment in our election, 37% likely voters voting against it, 6% not sure. Um, that's nearly three in five Iowa voters, uh, if the poll holds up uh, in the vote, uh, would pass this amendment. How do you explain or interpret those poll results briefly, please? Um, all due respect to our public, if you look at the uh, Des Moines Register article and the folks that were interviewed, they didn't understand uh, the amendment and what it actually entails. Uh, a lot of people actually still believe that when they read this amendment, they see the language of strict scrutiny, that this means that we're going to be more strict on, on gun laws. So we're going to hold more people accountable, and it's the exact opposite. Uh, there just hasn't been a lot of education um, to the public about what this uh, really does. You know, For example, Representative Holt said that this is just um, – a way to embrace modern-day language. Well, if that was the case, people would actually know what strict scrutiny means, and citizens don't they don't understand it. Um, and I think that if we had ample opportunity to be able to educate them on, their, on them up to this point, uh, that they would, they would not vote for this. Okay. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks, thank you so much for joining us live and for your opinion. Appreciate the opportunity, Ben. Thanks. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's move on from that gun measure to change the Iowa Constitution with that amendment to talk about some other choices you have on your election ballot uh, for this midterm 2022 election. Katarina Sestarek is with us uh, uh, once again, IPR state government reporter. Hello again, Katarina. Hi, Ben. So uh, on the front of the ballot, uh, we have some... Uh, We have the highest profile races that we've been talking about quite a bit, interviewing a number of the candidates, all of the major party candidates uh, for uh, the congressional races, the gubernatorial race, uh, have been invited to share their views, uh, talk about uh, their views here on River to River. Uh, Some have uh, uh, been on, some have declined, some have not answered. But let's talk a little bit about some of the lesser known statewide races that uh, voters will see or have seen on the ballot, the early voters. Uh, Shall we start with the Secretary of State? Sure. Tell us about that race. Um, Right. So you have um, current Republican Secretary of State Paul Pate is running for re-election, and Democrat Joel Miller, who is currently the Lynn County Auditor, so he runs elections in that county, um, is running against him. 
Um, and they um, Miller has sort sort of been um, attacking Paul Pate, saying that he should be doing more to disavow people like Rudy Giuliani and former President Donald Trump, people who have denied and tried to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, um, and that he's not doing enough to push back on those c- sort of conspiracy theories and false information. Um, but Pate counters that he is working to fight misinformation and disinformation. He frequently says that's the biggest challenge facing his office. Um, He has put out on his website, you know, myth busting about different things related to the election. For example, there's a myth out there right now that uh, hand counting ballots is uh, more secure and more accurate than putting them through the vote counting machines that Iowa has. But Pate says that's not true. And he's been, you know, trying to be trying to publicize that fact. Um, And so that's just that they also kind of have a history of butting heads um, in court over certain voting, um, voting laws and procedures. Um, And so they're kind of these old, um, they've, they've kind of butted heads before and now they're, they're running against each other for Secretary of State. Okay, Paul Pate, the Republican incumbent, Joel Miller, uh, the Democrat uh, there. Let's move on to state auditor. What is the matchup there? Uh, Democrat Rob Sand is the incumbent, and Republican Todd Halber is running against him. Um, Rob Sand was first elected in 2018. Um, I, I believe he's the only, um, in terms of the statewide races in Iowa, he's the only um, Democrat that has spent more than his Republican opponent um, on this year's campaign. Um, and his opponent, um, I, I was on Iowa Press last week with both of them, mm-hmm. and they seemed to kind of agree with each other on a lot of things, honestly. Um, his opponent, Todd Halber, um, agreed with Rob Sand on a lot of his kind of what he was saying about how he runs his office and how he considers the office to be a watchdog for the people of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and Todd Halber has recently won a $1 million lawsuit against the state for being a whistleblower. Um, so that's kind of an interesting wrinkle in the race as well. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, On to treasurer of the state. What is the matchup there? Uh, Democrat Michael Fitzgerald is the current treasurer. Um, He's been in office for 40 years. And Robbie Smith is the Republican. He's a state senator who is running against Michael Fitzgerald. Um, And this is one of the races where Republicans really see a chance at taking one of the Repu- taking one of the Democratic held seats mm-hmm. in state government for Republicans, um, and this is something where um, Robbie Smith has said he would speak up more about policy if he's elected state treasurer. Um, he's criticized Michael Fitzgerald for not publicly supporting the Republican-backed tax cuts, um, and Fitzgerald says he just focuses on things that actually affect the treasurer's office, which you know their mission is keeping state money safe. Um, they don't get to decide whether taxes are cut or not. Mm-hmm. The attorney general's race, of course, we have uh, Attorney General Tom Miller, which um, uh, is he the the longest serving state attorney general in in the country right now, perhaps U.S. history. I'm not sure, but maybe you can clear that up. Tell us about that race. Um, yeah, so he's another Democrat who's been in office for decades. Um, and this is, again, a year that Republicans think that they can um, finally get him out of office. So Brenna Byrd is the Republican who's running against him. She used to work for um, Governor Terry Branstad and for former con- Congressman Steve King. Um, and she's now the Guthrie County attorney. Um, and she they've kind of butted heads over um, abortion. And she said that she would defend any abortion laws um, 
that Iowa passes, any abortion restrictions, she would defend those in court. Um, Tom Miller has declined to um, defend the fetal heartbeat law in court because he said he just couldn't, um, he just vehemently disagrees with it and couldn't bring himself to defend that in court. So that left it to private attorneys to defend that law. Um, and Byrd has also talked about, you know, uh, suing Joe Biden, um, although, you know, joining national lawsuits is not, you know, a huge part of the job of Iowa Attorney General. Okay, but thank you for bringing us up to speed on some of the lower profile statewide races Iowans will find on the ballot. I guess a, a quick last question I think uh, voters run into when you see the ballot and they th- say, well, I don't really know anything about this particular race or that particular race. If you're not acquainted with any of the names you see, the choices there, you, you can leave those options blank and, and your other choices still count, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, Katarina Sestarek, IPR state government reporter. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Well, the final selection uh, section of your uh, election ballot, uh, one that we haven't discussed, is uh, titled Judicial Ballot. And joining us now to clue us in on what we should be considering there, Scott Peters. Uh, He's joined us many times here on this program. He's a professor and the department head of political science at the University of Northern Iowa uh, in Cedar Falls. Uh, Scott, welcome to our program. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. You study judicial selection in states, so let's talk about judicial retention elections. Uh, uh, There is only a a simple thing there that you see, I guess, the listed judge, and and you have a yes or no. What what should be considered? What is that about? Give us some background. Well, uh, judicial retention elections are part of the what's called the merit selection system, which is the most commonly used selection system among the states. The states use a variety of uh, different methods to select and retain judges. The merit selection plan is the most common one, and it's kind of a two-part thing. The first part is that you have a commission that's composed of some combination of lawyers and laypeople, and they uh, sort through applications for judicial vacancies and make recommendations to the governor who appoints uh, the the people to become judges. And then after a certain time in office, uh, the judge goes before the public in one of these judicial retention elections that will be on your ballot here in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you noted, that simply asks the public, should the judge be retained in office, yes or no? Um, these were designed, the, the merit plan was designed about 100 years ago as a reaction to elections. Uh, it was designed by uh, sort of elites within the legal profession who, um, you know, in some ways were afraid that uh, the legal profession was kind of losing control of the courts, uh, um, concerned about a variety of issues regarding elections and their influence on courts. And so this was uh, sort of an attempt to try to rein in uh, some of the different uh, political and public pressures on courts. Um, uh, And the retention elections were meant to still allow a a sort of release valve, if you will, for the public to weigh in um, without really providing much of a threat that... um, the judges would lose all that often. Some of the folks who designed these actually made some comments at the time that basically said, well, you know, eventually maybe we can even just get rid of judicial retention elections, but they have stuck around. Uh, those of us with a, a political history uh, going back to 2010 will know that uh, while most 
election years. The judicial retention is is uh, not um, in headlines. It sure was in 2010. Take us back to 2010 and 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 talk about uh, that campaign to remove um, judges here in Iowa. Yeah, that was a reaction to the same-sex marriage decision of Arnhem versus Bryan in 2009. And three state Supreme Court justices recall that 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 decision was a unanimous decision. uh, And there were three justices on the ballot in 2010. Uh, There was a campaign launched by uh, conservatives. Uh, A lot of national money came in for that and a lot of organization at the state level um, to try to defeat those judges and and send a signal. And they were successful uh, for the first time in Iowa's history. Uh, state Supreme Court justices were defeated in retention elections. This does not happen all that often nationally either. Um, the the typical nationally, the the judges are typically elected with 70 percent of the vote, give or take, on average uh, in these retention elections. So it's pretty rare that judges are defeated. Um, in 2010, that election had a real partisan flavor to it. Um, normally these elections are, um, well, one of the reasons the, the retention rates are so high is that, ju- is that voters lack information. Mm-hmm. Uh, as elections go, these are, these are pretty crummy elections, right? The purpose of an election is that voters can make a choice. Uh, these offer you no choice um, because there's no other candidate on the ballot. Um, and they uh, don't give you the most important piece of information you can have as a voter, which is the party affiliation of the candidate. And so voters are typically making up their minds with very little information. But in 2010, they did have some information. They knew that the judges had um, voted to bar same-sex or to allow same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in the results. If you go county by county through the results, you'll see that more voters hung around to vote uh, in those retention elections in more conservative areas. Um, the uh, judges' share of the vote was lower in more conservative counties, uh, more highly Republican counties. So, um, you know, voters had had some information there, and they were able to make their choice accordingly. Yeah, and and just to go back to something you mentioned here, because it points out something in the difference. So, so why a voter would uh, say no on judicial retention? Because um, here, as you noted in the. Uh, same-sex uh, marriage, um, uh, Supreme Co- Iowa Supreme Court decision. It was a unanimous decision. All seven justices uh, agreed uh, that the Iowa Constitution uh, should strike down, did stri- should strike down the, the ban on same-sex uh, marriage, uh, that being unconstitutional. So that campaign uh, was, in my memory, about uh, you know if you. More or less, the campaign was, if you disagree with same-sex marriage being legal, then you should vote these judges up for retention out of, out of their positions, right? And that, that's, is that a correct way to see it? How should we see that today when we look at the ballot? That's definitely what the election was about. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, defenders of the judges, you know, uh, uh, there were campaigns, but they didn't have nearly the resources behind them that were mounted to try to defend the judges. And they sort of campaigned on these broad principles of judicial independence and that we shouldn't judge judge judges uh, by the deci- by the particular decisions they make. Um, but you know that was a that was a far less effective measure uh, or argument to make. Um, I think 
you know how how you should make up your mind on judicial retention elections mm-hmm. really um obviously that's up to the voter right uh yeah. the the bar association does do a performance evaluation uh and they make those available um and so you can google Iowa bar association judicial performance evaluations uh and you can see the, the those are the results of of attorneys who practice before the judges um but i don't know that those are all that meaningful to most uh uh, most voters, because you know, uh, most voters don't have much experience with the legal system. Yeah, uh, what uh, we do see in these, what we do see in these races, is that when judges are defeated, it's usually because there's been some high-profile decision um, that has stood out, and uh, a campaign has been mounted against them in some way. Are you aware of any campaigns in this election to unseat judges on the Iowa ballot? I'm not. Uh, there, you know, there have been uh, some high-profile decisions. Most notably, the the Planned Parenthood uh, versus uh, Reynolds uh, decision, just within the past year, that overturned a 2018 decision. Um, in 2018, the Iowa Supreme Court said that uh, the Iowa Constitution protected a right to abortion. Um, the court reversed itself in 2022. Um, but I have not seen uh, any sort of systematic or organized effort really trying to, um, you know, uh, vote the justices off based on that comparable to what we saw in uh, 2009, 2010. So you would expect all of all of the judges on the ballot to be retained? If uh, certainly if things go according to, to the way they normally do, I would expect them to to be retained, yeah, with probably pretty comfortably, unless there's some sort of last-minute uh, uh, thing that, that I'm not seeing out there. Scott Peters, a professor and department head of the University of Northern Iowa's political science department. Scott, thanks for your uh, cluing us in on this. We appreciate it. Until next time. Thank you. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features the Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. Coming up tomorrow on the program, it's a Politics Wednesday. Polls telling us anything could happen election night. We'll get the view from political scientist Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College tomorrow. Uh, Also some foreign affairs mixed in, a dissent in Congress over the current Ukraine strategy. We'll talk about that and plenty more politics at home and abroad tomorrow on this program. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.